the passage that we've already read, Judges 8, 4 to 28, as uh, we continue in our series in Judges. I want to tell you uh, about a man that I once knew as you're making your way to this text. You know, sometimes you meet people along the journey of life that you don't really realize how they impact you until long after you've been with them. And uh, there's a man in my life who fits that bill, a man who was called Ron Klein. Ron was an elderly man by the time that I met him. He was a pastor who had served faithfully for many, many years. He'd been involved in church planting, been involved in racial reconciliation. He, He was a good and a godly man. He was the kind of guy that you you didn't really want to pray with because it both encouraged you and discouraged you. It encouraged you because it was just so beautiful to hear his relationship with Christ flow out of him and his words, but also a little deflating because you realized how far you had to go. Um, He was the kind of guy who always had a Bible in his hand, was quick to open it, quick to read from it, quick to encourage from it. He was a good man. But what I'll never forget about Ron was uh, he had these two words that he would say all the time. And those two words were finish well. Finish well. Sometimes Ron would say this with tears in his eyes. Because Ron wasn't saying finish well from the position of a sort of ivory tower kind of thinker. He wasn't talking about finishing well in the way that you might read on you know, sort of a church sign as you drive through the country or uh, an internet meme. Now, he, he said finish well because he knew he was in the twilight years of his ministry, and he knew, he knew the real temptation not to finish well. But I'm happy to report that when Ron went to be with Jesus, he did, in fact, run through the tape. Ron, one of the last times I was with him, I visited him in a nursing home, and he, he didn't want to be there. He, he had to be there. He couldn't care for himself or his wife any longer, and so he was, he was in this nursing home. But Ron, he, he became the de facto pastor of the nursing home. He just always did ministry. In the final days of his life, he, he looked at me with tears in his eyes, lamenting the fact that he wasn't in uh, physical shape to go onto the mission field. And he said again to me, Mike, finish well can hear it. It makes me almost emotional. And it's hard for me not to read the, the passage that we read this morning and, and wish that Gideon had had a Ron Klein. Finish well. Because in this passage that tells us about the end of Gideon's life, we find a man who did anything but finish well. We find a man who, in very striking ways, resembles Israel itself. Down the toilet bowl, Gideon goes. Now, I want to give you full disclosure. There are multiple ways to read Judges 8. Some commentators believe that he's a sympathetic figure, and they seek to defend the actions that he takes in this passage, but I'm, I'm not of that opinion. As we read this text, you're going to realize that the Lord is referenced only a couple of times, almost as an aside by Gideon, glibly mentioning the Lord. There are no more signs given Gideon by God as he is raised up to be the instrument of Israel's salvation. There is only failure because Gideon's motivation has fundamentally changed. He does not finish well. 
We find a leader in Gideon who began well and finishes worse than he began. And if you want sort of a a tagline or a slogan for this passage this morning, it's just this, friends, sin ruins everyone. Doesn't matter who you are. Looking out on a, a congregation, many faces I haven't seen in a long time, some I've never seen, some I see week after week, it doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from this morning, sin ruins everyone. When Israel's saviors need saving, you know things are bad. This is the story of the last days of Gideon. I want to call this message, V is for vengeance, vendetta, and vanity. V is for vengeance, vendetta, and vanity. Because what happens in this passage is nonstop conflict. Each can be described by one of these words. I want to point out to you first Gideon's vengeance in verses 4 to 13. Now, if you're just joining us, what you need to know about Gideon is that God raised Gideon up to save his people from oppression uh, by a, a power, a superpower called the Midianites. And Gideon, with a band of 300 men, um, are given a miraculous victory by the Lord. And what we're, what we're coming into here in verse 4 is the aftermath of that victory. God had said to Gideon, I will save Israel by your hand. God has fulfilled that promise, but Gideon's not quite done. Verse 4, and Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. There is incredible imagery in that language. Israel had crossed over the Jordan from east to west to take over the promised land. Now Gideon is crossing over the Jordan from west to east, leaving the promised land in hot pursuit of two kings named Ziba and Zalmunna. We get the sense that Gideon will stop at nothing to find these men, to track them down, to hold them accountable for their crimes. He's left the promised land. He's motivated by something different. But on his way across the Jordan, as he moves into the east, as he's chasing after these kings, we read in verse 5 that he comes into a land named uh, Sukkot. It's the way I learned to pronounce that in seminary, Sukkot, and asks the people there to support him and his troops. They're exhausted yet pursuing verse 4. He says that in his request to them, uh, my troops are exhausted and I am pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me. It might seem a little unreasonable for a foreign army to come into a territory and ask for support for their troops. And you would be right if you're thinking that, but this in fact wasn't a foreign army. Here's a little tidbit. Back in Joshua chapter 13, we read that Moses, the, the, one of the leaders of Israel, had given the land of Sukkot to a tribe of Israel called Gad. Joshua 13, 24, and 27, Moses gave an inheritance also uh, to the tribe of Gad. And then in verse 27, that inheritance includes Sukkot. These are his own people. It is entirely reasonable for him to request some support some rations, give my men some bread, we're doing this for the cause, we're doing this for Israel, will you support us? And yet he's denied. Now, 
Verse 6, as the men of Sukkot, the officials of Sukkot respond, they actually respond in a completely reasonable way themselves. They say, give us a show of hands. What they literally mean is they want to see the hands of the kings. They want to see that Gideon has won. They want to be sure that they can be sure. It's just wise foreign policy. See, the land of Sukkot and Penuel here in in this passage, again, are on the eastern side of the Jordan, very close to the Midianites. If Gideon and his group of 300 are more bark than they are bite, and they can't actually rout Zeba and Zalmunna, well, who's going to get the brunt of the retaliation if they offer support? So it's a completely reasonable request, but it's also a completely reasonable rejection. But listen to Gideon. When the Lord, there's one of the first and only references to God in this text. When the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hands, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. He goes up to Penuel and we find that he says very similarly to them, only he threatens to tear down their tower. Fast forward and uh, Gideon leads his men into Karkor where Zeba and Zalmunna are are there with their army. The entire group of men is uh, unaware that they're being pursued. They feel secure, verse 11. You can tell that there has been a substantial dwindling of the Midianite army. Uh, 120,000 men had fallen who drew the sword. The victory had been won. The fight was over. The enemy had retreated. And yet Gideon falls upon the Midianite camp, captures Zeba and Zalmunna, and throws the entire army into a panic. Now this, of course, means that there's going to be some resolution to our conflict with Sukkot and Penuel. What will Gideon do? And what we find in Gideon is a man who is completely overtaken by his own sense of vengeance. I want you to see that what begins to happen in the life of Gideon is the tragedy of I must become more and he must become less. He's the anti-John the Baptist. Everything that Gideon does, he does out of a sense of his own reputation, his own honor, his own vengeance. Look at verse 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the son of Herez. He captures a young man of Sukkot and questions him. He gathers intel, all the names of the officials and elders of Sukkot, 77 men. Uh, last night at that wedding reception, I was just thrilled to be able to see Johnny for the first time since he left, Johnny and his girlfriend. And uh, we sent his girlfriend at the wedding reception to gather intel about what we were eating. And she came back with a full report, and it was perfect. It was almost like she had written it all down. She gathered the intel for us. Here is a man who has gathered intel on all the officials and the elders of Sukkot. And he turns up in their city, and look at verse 15. Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he goes and gets a switch. And he taught the men of Sukkot a lesson. Now let me ask you this. Is it just me... Or does Gideon sound more concerned with the fact that he has been taunted 
than he does about the fact that his men were not given bread. Let me read for you again his words. Behold Ziba and Zalmunna about whom you taunted me, saying, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? He teaches the men of Sukkot a lesson, and he breaks down the tower of Penuel, killing the men of the city. It sounds to me like this man is completely consumed with himself. You taunted me, and now I will have my revenge. Vengeance consumes Gideon. I wonder if you can relate. See, this is, again, one of the brilliant times where I don't have to tell you to be like Gideon. I know you're like Gideon, because I know I'm like Gideon. You see this vengeance in the back-and-forth bickering that you find on social media, the tit-for-tat kind of relationships that permeate our culture. You see the vengeance of Gideon in the passive-aggressive words and actions in the home or in the office. Vengeance. I want to confess to you, your pastor is a vengeful sinner. I haven't taught anybody a lesson with briars. I haven't pulled down any towers, but I am a vengeful person. I want revenge. I don't want to be taunted, mistreated, insulted. And when I am, well, I'm not very fun to be around. There's a reason, let me suggest, bring out my nerdy side. There's a reason that Batman is one of the most famous superheroes because he says what? I am vengeance. Gives us this fantasy of being able to unleash just like Gideon. All the pain of being taunted or insulted. I am vengeance and yet the Lord says vengeance is mine. Deuteronomy 32, 35, Romans 12, 19. Gideon's vengeance, we're finding that our hero is falling apart. Not only Gideon's vengeance, but Gideon's vendetta. He's taught the men of Sukkot a lesson. He's pulled down the tower of Penuel, and now there is that sticky issue, the hanging chad of Ziba and Zalmunna that he's captured. What will he do? Now, we want to be careful as we read the Old Testament. Some of us do uh, an injustice to the Bible by trying to psychologize the way that people think. Let's be clear. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? I can't read your mind. You can't read mine. I don't know your motivations. You don't know mine. We don't know Gideon's. But at the same time, Jesus, our Lord, teaches in Matthew 12, 34, for out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaks. Let me hear what you have to say, and I will tell you who you are. That's the way it works. Let's hear Gideon as he speaks to these kings. What is Gideon's motivation? Why so far out into the east? Why travel into Karkor? Why not be settled in the fact that the Lord had saved his people? Here's Gideon's motivation. He says to Ziba and Zalmunna, verse 18, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, as you are, so were they. 
Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers. So there's a a, a beauty and a a subtlety to the way that the biblical authors write. They've intentionally left this event out until this point so that you and I can see what's actually driving Gideon at this point. No longer does it have anything to do with the Lord saving his people. This is not a quest for salvation. This is a personal vendetta. Gideon needs this. His brothers have been murdered by these kings. The Lord's command to him to be raised up and to save the people of Israel from Midian was a beautiful cover-up and excuse for his ultimate purpose, his ultimate goal, which was bloodlust. They were my brothers. The sons of my mother, he says, verse 19, as the Lord lives, this is the second reference to God in this passage, in effect saying, I swear to God, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. His vengeance has given way to a complete personal vendetta and bloodlust. And look at this as the mess continues, verse 20. He said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. Now this is western Pennsylvania. I mean, I know many of you have taken your children out on their first hunting trip. What a joy it is to see your son or your daughter kill their first deer. I remember going fishing with my dad, catching my first fish. I mean, some of you would rejoice in seeing your child first uh, play their first solo in, in a musical or um, hit a home run in Little League or whatever it might be. It's almost like a rite of passage. The, the proud parent who sees their child accomplish something wonderful. But for Gideon, the only thing that will bring him honor is to see his child Jether kill these men who had killed his brothers. Rise, he says, and kill them. But I want you to see I want you to see what the writer is is showing us. He's showing us this Vader-like transformation in Gideon. I said before we even opened the Bible that when Braden was speaking, it sounded like Adam, didn't it? When Jether is described, see if you hear Gideon from chapter 6. The young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. He was afraid. Chapter 6, verse 27, as Gideon is called to tear down the altars of Baal, Gideon took ten men of his servants, verse 27, and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. The writer's saying, look at who Gideon used to be. Fearful, unassuming, timid. And now we have a man completely consumed with bloodlust, pursuing his own vendetta. Kill these kings, my son. And Jethro, like Gideon, can't. He's too fearful. Well, you know how that goes. No one wants to be the kid at the baseball game whose son strikes out. Nobody wants to be the father whose child can't keep a tune. We live vicariously through our children, don't we? That's a whole other sermon. That's not a good thing. 
But listen to how Ziba and Zalmunna begin to taunt. Rise yourself and fall upon us if you're really a man. For as the man is, so is his strength. Maybe your son's a coward because you are. Come on, big boy, kill us yourself. So Gideon arose and he killed Ziba and Zalmunna and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. He kills them and he plunders them. Again, I can relate. My dad used to tell me when I was growing up, if you ever get into a fight, don't stop punching. I always wanted to ask him, when do you start? I feel like I, I, I didn't need anyone to tell me to start punching. If you hit me, I'll hit you back. If you cross me, I'll cross you. If you offend me, I'll offend you. I live for my own personal vendettas, as do you. But when Israel's saviors need saving, how bad do you think sin really is? So Gideon's got vengeance, he's got a vendetta, but he's also got incredible vanity. Oh, and the vanity is his downfall. In verses 22 through 28, Gideon shows just how into himself he is. It's his own vengeance, his own vendetta, and his own vanity. Now understand this, I'm using vanity in two ways. I'm using vanity in the way that you typically think about vanity, the person who can't stop looking at themselves in the mirror. My sweet son, as he puts on costumes, he just loves to make sure he's, you know, looks right. It's okay when you're eight. When you're 39, it's a problem. The ability to, or, or the lack of an ability to turn away from the mirror, always to look at yourself, that's vanity. To be so impressed by the newspaper clippings or the talk around town about you, that is vanity. But vanity I'm also using in the sense that Jonah uses it when he says those who pay attention to vain idols forsake steadfast love. Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Vain idols. Because what happens in the life of Gideon here at the very end is he is so consumed with himself that the very person who was called to lead Israel out of idolatry leads her right back in. He's killed Ziba and Zalmunna. He has the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. That was royal plunder. And the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. You have saved us. Excuse me? Does anybody have a problem with that statement? You had better. You have saved us? That's the very reason the Lord took the troops down to 300, so that Israel couldn't say, my own hands have saved me. Gideon didn't save anyone. Stop with the celebration of people. You know what makes me almost go nuclear quicker than anything else is talk of how pastors grew churches. Pastor so-and-so grew such a church to this number. No, he didn't. What world do you live in? Any victory that takes place in the Christian life takes place because the Lord has done it. Rule over us, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. There's no correction. There's no, excuse me, let's alter that theology just a little bit. There's only a half-hearted rejection 
of rulership. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That's the third and final reference to God. I don't want to be your king. I couldn't possibly be your king. But let me, let me explain to you. There's a way of rejecting a title while still grasping at the responsibility. My wife and I just finished watching this really, really bad uh, show on Disney Plus that was sort of a legacy show based on the Mighty Ducks franchise. If you haven't watched it, you're not missing much. But uh, Emilio Estevez plays one of the coaches. Well, he used to be the coach of the Mighty Ducks. They're asking him to be a coach of another team, and he said, no, I couldn't possibly. But it's funny, because in almost every scene, he has a clipboard. He's running up plays. He's working one-on-one with players. Oh, I couldn't possibly be the coach. But you are, in fact, the coach, are you not? I couldn't possibly be your king. I couldn't rule over you. Oh, no, let me feign humility for a moment while I enjoy the gaze in the mirror. Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. Now, that sounds like something a king would say. Give me your treasure. Make your treasure my treasure. And so he gathers up all the gold that the men had as plunder from this battle that the Lord had graciously given them. They willingly give them to Gideon. They spread out a cloak, and every man threw it in the earrings of his spoil. And understand this, if you haven't read the book of Exodus, what is happening is we're revisiting Exodus. There's a a scene in the book of Exodus after the people have been saved from Egypt. They leave with earrings and gold and spoils of war. And as Moses goes up onto the mountain and is communing with God, the people get impatient, and they create a golden calf out of their earrings. And they say, behold, behold the Lord your God who led you out of Egypt. They worship a false god. Don't be mistaken by the fact that Gideon creates a religious icon. It's a calf. It is a golden calf. They throw the golden earrings into this, uh, onto this, this uh, sheet And he creates an ephod, which is a priestly garment, out of the gold that they had plundered from the Midianites. Now, there is a lot of discussion about whether he created an ephod, as it's described in the book of Exodus, chapter uh, 27, I believe, or whether he created an idol. Why not both? He created a priestly garment that became an idol. Why do we say that? Because Israel whored after it there. Every time the language of whoredom is used in the book of Judges, it is a reference to Israel spiritually cheating on her God. It is an ephod that has become an idol. Understand this. It is a religious image that has become an idol. Not only bad things are idols. In fact, bad things are almost never the things that snare us into idolatry. It is good things that we freight with more value than they deserve that become idols. Tim Keller writes in his book, Counterfeit Gods, a common mistake people make when they hear about the biblical concept of idolatry, 
is that we think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. What are you tempted to worship? Maybe it's an image, religious or otherwise. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's your favorite sports team. It is the good things in life that that draw us away from pure and sincere devotion to the Lord. Who could argue that a priestly garment in ancient Israel is a bad thing? They're not bad things, they're good things. But look at the way that the Bible itself describes this idol. All Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. In his vanity and desire to be thought something great, make your treasure my treasure, he created for Israel more vanity, idolatry, false worship, counterfeit gods, as they sought anything that they could devote their hearts to that wasn't Yahweh. Don't think for a moment that you and I aren't as susceptible to worshiping even religious imagery, it could be anything, and being taken away from sincere devotion to the Lord. Gideon has his clipboard. He has all of the trappings of kingship. He's just rejected the title. At least he does until his son's born. It's one of Gideon's final acts in his life is to have a son. Verse 31, we'll meet this man next week. He's a real great guy. He names his son Abimelech, which being translated as my father is king. I couldn't possibly be your king. Let me just live like it and name my son my father is the king. What an absolute embarrassment. What a profound mess. I am not standing in condemnation of Gideon. I'm standing in condemnation of myself. Who are we? Vengeful, filled with personal vendettas, vain, indescribably vain. But do you know what this passage calls out for? It calls out for the day when the person who saves Israel truly is their king. The book of Judges is all about Israel's absolute and profound need for a king. The final note of this book is everyone did what was right in their own eyes, for there was no king in Israel. Which in the context of Judges is paging King David. And in the context of the entire Bible is paging King Jesus. Do you know how 
absolutely important it is for you to not only be able to say, I have a Savior, but to say, I have a sinless Savior. Your theology is important. I don't just have a Savior. I have a sinless Savior. A Savior who was never at any point in his life driven purely by vengeance. But as he was being crucified, wrap your hearts around this, prayed, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. A Savior who was never driven by his own personal vendetta. Or if you want to even make it lighter, his own personal preferences or agenda, but submitted himself willingly throughout the entirety of his life to the Father's will and plan, so that as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he could say, Father, if there's any way for this, will, for this cup to pass, but not my will, your will be done. A Savior who was never influenced by his own vanity. Who spent more time looking out on crowds who needed compassion than he did in the mirror or at his social media followers or the size of the group of the people who were following him. Absolutely immune to vanity. And this is our Savior. This is the one for who for you in your place, for your vengeance and vendettas and vanity, for your idolatry and sin, took the wrath that you deserve. Do you trust this sinless Savior? If you did, if you do, There will be no hiding from the fact that you're just like Gideon. There will be only a free and joyful admission that yet, though I am a great sinner, Christ is a great Savior. Will you trust Him? Will you come to Him this morning? Even if you were the best of the best in the church, Even if you were the leader of the leaders, even if you were Gideon himself, you know who you would need? You would need Israel's king. You would need Jesus. You do need Jesus. Believe in him. Come to him. Do not wait. Do it now. Would you pray with me? As we confess our sins, confess that Gideon's vengeance and vendetta and vanity resides in our own hearts, confess our need for a sinless Savior, and place our faith in that Christ. Lord, we... We thought this morning that as we opened your word, we were looking at a window, but we were looking at a mirror. We thought that we were learning about Gideon, we were learning about ourselves. Each and every one of us is consumed with self. 
we're bent in on ourselves, we think the world revolves around us, we're filled with vengeance, we hold personal vendettas and grudges, we're filled with vanity and want to be thought well of by others, we worship idols. But you have provided in your Son a sinless Savior. Before the perfect standard of your law, it's searching and penetrating commands to stand blameless. Never sinned. Never failed. Always obeyed perfectly. And for sinful people like us, he went to the cross. He died. He took our punishment, the punishment that we deserve from you, a lifetime separated from you in hell. He bore all that wrath on the cross and rose again. We want to confess that we believe that. For some of us, uh, Lord, we might be someone sitting here, you know them, who's, who's thinking these things for the very first time. Yes, I am a sinner. I I need a sinless Savior. I need someone to to die for me and to rise again. And Lord, I pray that you would would help them to, in their hearts, confess Jesus as Lord and to believe that he rose from the dead and to follow you. Or make us a church that is centered on Jesus. We pray for Jesus' sake and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.